This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I want to tell you a story about grace, not just God's grace. We'll get to that. But I want to tell you a story about a woman named Grace. Her name was Grace Olive Wiley. Grace Olive Wiley was a trained entomologist, uh, roughly around the 1920s. Uh, She had gone to the University of Kansas, studied to be an entomologist, really enjoyed that line of work. And eventually came uh, into this, this time or this opportunity where she began to uh, oversee a few reptiles. And in overseeing those reptiles, she was deathly afraid. Uh, apparently, I believe she was roughly in her 30s at this point. And up through about 30 years old, she was always so afraid of snakes. Not uncommon. A lot of us are. I am. And so she really wasn't excited to be handling snakes. She wasn't excited to be around them. She knew that there were very venomous snakes that were nearby. And eventually, while she was doing her job, a snake kind of slithered across her arm and it didn't bite her. And it dawned on her that just maybe it's possible to tame very venomous, deadly snakes to keep them from uh, biting, to keep them from harming. And so she switched her entire career, moved from studying insects to the, to the field of herpetology, and she wanted to spend more time with reptiles, snakes, and gila monsters, and things like that. So she decided, I'm going to put all of my energy into taming these deadly, vicious snakes. She became well-known for her ability to handle snakes. She had the nickname, the Snake Lady. Eventually, she took uh, a role, a position, at uh, this, this Museum of Natural History in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And while there, she was known to uh, almost, it might from the outside, look like she was extremely cavalier in the way that she would handle these snakes. Many times she would have, some people talked about a, an approach she would take to, uh, with cobra specifically so that she would not be harmed by the venom. And so she had known that for cobras, in order for them to get the venom inside of you, they actually, it's not something that just bites and just shoots it through. Uh, cobras have to almost chew the venom into you. So she would do this thing where she would take her hand and like tighten the palm of her hand by arching her fingers back and it would be so tight that a cobra, even if it bit, it couldn't chew the venom into you. So she would sometimes demonstrate that and show these incredible feats of what appears to be bravery, some would say foolishness, but she would do that and was extremely well known for it. Also, while she was doing this and she was running that uh, natural museum and and the the reptile exhibit specifically, uh, she would be, again, very cavalier and just let the snakes roam anywhere they wanted to in her workspace. And it would start to create such discomfort by her coworkers and other folks in the community that they eventually fired her because they felt like that the risks were far too high and the potential damage was also far too high. Regardless of how comfortable she felt, regardless of how familiar she felt with this approach and with these snakes, they still saw it as a danger and a risk that was just too 
high. So she uh, eventually moved on to uh, Chicago and went to uh, the western suburb of, of Brookfield and she worked at the Brookfield Zoo and she was again a curator of the reptile exhibit there at the zoo. She only lasted a year again because she followed the same types of approaches that everyone else would look at and say, that's not safe, that's probably not the wisest. But for her, she had spent time and had never been bitten to the point where venom was a problem. She had not uh, had any significant health problems. She was safe. Most, uh, all, as far as she knew, all of her snakes were, were tame and they were safe. But, but eventually she, because of her cavalier approaches, 19 snakes escaped from her, uh, from her grasp somehow. Cages were left unlocked, what have you, and they escaped and they were roaming. And so the, the zoo fired her again. But Grace would still abound. Grace eventually moved to California, moved to Hollywood with her mother. And it sounds funny, snake lady living with her mother, but that was her life. And so she eventually moved out to California and she became a very well-known uh, snake handler in Hollywood. As a matter of fact, she became uh, the, the, the go-to person for Hollywood movies like Tarzan, The Jungle Book. She would loan out some of her King Cobras for extra money, and she ran a roadside kind of common man, common woman's rep reptilian exhibit in California. And so you could just drive off the side of the road, go check it out. It, everything was roaming freely in her little exhibit area. She didn't have to deal with kind of the cumbersome rules, laws, and regulations that a real zoo would have because she trusted her ability to still manage these snakes. She had become so popular, she did this in, in, in Hollywood, Los Angeles area, for roughly 10, 11, 12 years. And then eventually, uh, a well-known photojournalist by the name of Daniel Mannix, who was a part of this magazine at the time called True Magazine, he decided, let's get a picture of the snake lady. Let's get a picture of the snake lady. Let's get a picture of this woman who has done these seemingly just crazy feats and not been harmed or maimed by these deadly creatures. She had had upwards of two, 300 snakes, dangerous, venomous snakes. She had had no damage befall her. So let's get a picture of her. So Daniel Mannix, by the way, if you look up Daniel Mannix, he's the guy who wrote the book that most people think the movie Gladiator was based off of, so Google that later. Daniel Mannix goes to take a picture of this woman, and when he gets there, he says, hey, can we get a picture uh, of you with one of your cobras as they are kind of displaying their hood, right? The picture that you typically get of a cobra when it's angry is like its hood comes out and is like on full display. And she said, I don't think we can do that because uh, cobras display their hood when there's an act of aggression or when they feel defensive. But all of my snakes are tame. They don't ever feel uh, uh, like there's any act of aggression on my part. They don't feel threatened by me. So I don't know that you're gonna, it's gonna take a long time. I don't think you're gonna be able to get a picture of that. And he said, well, do you have any new snakes that's not familiar yet? She said, well, yeah, I do. I have this one Indian cobra that I don't, that I've not necessarily had a lot of time with yet and she is not uh, familiar with me yet. I'm working on her, but we're not completely, you know, com simpatical, if you will. And so she said, yeah, let's try this one. We'll do that one. So she sets up the Indian Cobra, and Daniel Mannix gets his, his camera set up to take the photo, and when he takes the photo, the flash startles this Indian Cobra, and the Indian Cobra lunges out, and so Grace grabs the cobra to pull the cobra back, and it bites her on her middle finger. 
She immediately was extremely calm. She put the snake back in its cage. She went to go retrieve some of her anti-venom that she thought she had. She found out that that vial had been cracked, and so it all had leaked out. So she asked Daniel Mannix to take her to the hospital upon learning that the hospital didn't carry venom for those kinds of snakes. And within an hour and a half, Grace died. It's a tragic story. It's a really hard truth, but it's something that's extremely true in, our, in many of our lives because many times, much like with this snake, there are things that we believe we can manage long enough. And if we have a long history of managing it well, then we think we'll continue to have that same success in managing it. And eventually, that grace lasts for a while until grace runs out. Our story today is exactly that. What happens when grace runs out? I find it extremely ironic that the story I just shared with you, this woman's name is Grace, and to put a finer point on it, Grace's grace ran out. What does it look like for our, for in our situation, for grace to run out? This is where we find ourselves in the book of Nahum. Now, for you to know just a little bit of background here, Nahum uh, is, if anything, when you read through these small, this a small book, three chapters, when you read through it, there could be one thing you can overlook really easy, and there's a connection you may uh, miss here. If anything, I think Nahum could really be um, second Nineveh. If Jonah is first Nineveh, Nahum would be second Nineveh. If you, if you remember, uh, if, uh, Jonah's case, remember this, this happened about, Jonah's story happens about 100 to 150 years before this. And uh, Jonah goes to Nineveh, and you remember Jonah was extremely upset. Jonah was angry having to go because he knew the message that God wanted him to preach wasn't a message of judgment alone. It was a message of potential judgment with, with a, a call to repent so that they could potentially be restored. Jonah didn't want the repentance and restoration. He just wanted the judgment, remember. So he ran the opposite direction and did all these things. And God created this great fish and to force him to go back and deliver the message that he had called him to share. Jonah was angry. Jonah ends with uh, him kind of waiting there, hoping the judgment will befall Nineveh, only to find out it doesn't because they repent. And the story ends with Jonah angry, pouting, stewing, because he didn't get to see the judgment that he wanted. In many ways, uh, uh, Nahum is the prophecy that got away for Jonah. Jonah would have loved to have been in Nahum's shoes. Because here we, here we are now, 100 to 150 years later, and we find out what happened to Nineveh. We find out Nineveh has returned back to their wicked ways. Nineveh's repentance was short-lived. Nineveh experienced the grace of God, and eventually the grace of God runs out. This is true for all. We don't know, right, when there are actions of unrepentant sin in which we engage, we don't know when God's grace will run out. There are consequences. The reason why we have not, any of us, the reason why we have not suffered the most extreme consequences for our own sin and our own actions is solely because of God's grace. God's grace restrains consequences. He restrains our own sin nature 
too. We're not nearly, we know that we are um, uh, totally depraved, but we are not absolutely depraved. We are not as bad as we could be, right? God's grace restrains that. In the same way, God's grace restrains those consequences. Even the worst consequences that we have uh, dealt with, it could probably and likely and most certainly be far worse. God's grace even restrains that. But how long does God's grace abound in those situations? How long? This is where Nineveh found themselves. They found themselves in this situation where they had been uh, shown some acts of repentance for a little bit and then completely went the other direction. Go back to the story that we started with. What causes, right? What causes someone to overlook real danger. There's a lot of things in all of us that make us be that. It's easy to look at that situation and go, well, that's just, that's just crazy. Anybody should know better than that. During my time in Alaska, we learned about the story of a man known as the Grizzly Man. In many ways, similar to this, this snake story, right? Had spent time working with bears and, and spending time eating with bears and spending time just living with bears. And years go by and things were safe and they felt comfortable and they felt like they had managed the situation well. And then eventually the man and his girlfriend were eaten by the bear. Now, now this isn't just to shame people for bad decisions. This is a deeper thing. What makes us get to that point? What makes us get to the place where we feel comfortable managing very dangerous uh, uh, threat of bodily injury and even deadly risks? What makes us feel comfortable there. Is it just carelessness? Quite possibly. What are some synonyms for careless? Inattentive, right? Not, not paying close attention to the dangers that are involved. Thoughtless, unmindful, right? Not having our mind on, on, on what's taking place in the moment. Possibly negligent, forgetting all the rules that were in place for safety. Maybe even reckless. That attitude of, it can't happen to me because I've done this for that long, so it can't happen to me. Those are all things that were likely involved in those decisions, and those are things that are involved even in our own. Those are the things that were involved with Nineveh. Now, what are the, what's the opposite of those things? What's the opposite of being careless? What's the opposite of being inattentive? What's the opposite of being unmindful or reckless? Well, some antonyms there would be conscientious, right? Uh, uh, on, on intentionally thinking about what could happen, being thoughtful, uh, being careful, being cautious. The reason why we lower those things in us isn't because we just love to take on risks. It's because familiarity breeds contempt. We get so comfortable with things, with risks or even sin, that we become so familiar and we just start thinking, eh, I got it. I'll be okay. What do we often do? What the Ninevites did. We will overestimate our ability to manage our sin and underestimate sin's ability to manage us. That's the reason why we fall. That's the reason why when we start to repent, we revert back. We trust ourselves more than we trust sin's power, ability, inevitability of overtaking us outside of real intervention. This is where they found themselves. This is where we find ourselves. And no question, in no way, did, can anyone truly manage those risks for life. That's exhausting. You, you take on something. This woman took on this very dangerous animal, this dangerous reptile. 
You know how exhausting it has to be to just always be on top of it, always be cautious, always be conscientious, always be aware of the risks. Then why do it? There's something else, right? We get so familiar and maybe we are a, a victim of survivor bias. I've made it. I've made it for this long. I'll likely continue to make it this long. But it only takes one moment to get bitten. This is where Nineveh finds themselves. They spent 100 to 150 years, at least at one point, showing signs of repentance. Jonah and Nineveh still dealing with the Assyrian Empire. This whole book is talking about the impacts that the Assyrian Empire is having on uh, people suffering injustice, on people who are the children of Israel, Judah specifically. Assyria is this country that's known to be wicked, known to be violent. They would force these smaller nations around them to, to submit to them and suffer humiliation, to suffer violence. So you've got Israel and Judah, these northern and southern kingdoms, uh, suffering from the aggression of the Assyrian Empire. Again, that's why Jonah was so reluctant to go to Nineveh, the capital city, <clears throat> the capital of Assyria, right? Because they didn't really want, he didn't want to see them. They've been horrible. They've been wicked. Didn't want to see them. And yet here they repent. And then Nahum comes on the scene to go, hey, your repentance is waning. You've completely reverted back. This is why we have to see this picture of who God is fully, right? This holistic view of who God is. God is gracious. God is merciful. God was the most gracious at this time to this undeserving nation and even to undeserving Judah because of the degree to which sometimes they would uh, commiserate with these wicked entities. But, but God has shown his mercy and shown his grace time and time again. Be very careful about uh, ca uh, casting God as almost having split personalities. That in the Old Testament, he was super judgy God. And in the New Testament, he's really gracious God. God's been gracious through and through. He's been the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He's always been gracious. And he's always been a God of justice. <clears throat> he's always been a God of righteousness. Here, we see that at, this, at one point, God looks at what's happening. And he's been completely gracious. He's been completely merciful. And the Assyrians and the Ninevites, they just resume their evil ways. They trampled on God's people. They trampled on God's grace. They would boast in their victory over God. They would uh, trample on this grace that God had given them. <clears throat> and here Nahum is prophesying that the Lord is now going to destroy Nineveh. The thing that Jonah wished he could preach exclusively. Nahum is saying, y'all are getting ready to go down. Y'all are getting ready to get wiped out. You all have been completely wicked, and I am bringing my vengeance to you. So when you read through the first chapter, ultimately, that's what you're looking at, right? God is describing just how angry he is. Don't just think of God as loving and merciful. Make sure you understand that, but understand it can't be love without justice. There is no love without righteousness, which means you can't love God and not have any anger. What do you get angry about? Anything that is counter to God, anything that moves against God or moves away from God should bring anger. Anything that that any joy that we find, we should find because we're moving in lockstep with God and moving in lockstep with God's people. When God sees that we are moving, our movement is a different direction, then he's angry. 
Because to move away from God or against God is to sin. Pick a sin, I guarantee you it's either moving away or against God or both. That's where they've been. So when he says things like the Lord is jealous and an avenging God and the Lord takes vengeance and, and, and is fierce in wrath, the Lord takes vengeance against his foes. He is furious with his enemies. When you, when you see that, you should see he's really focusing on his vengeance, on his anger. He's really focusing on just how fierce, how, how unbridled this wrath can be. And it's not just because he's just this, you know, fomenting, uh, reckless, angry God. Don't think about having a bad temper and just not knowing what you're getting ready to do next. It's very deliberate. It's very focused. It's very specific. God is angry because these folks have moved back to their acts of injustice and their acts of unrighteousness. Both are always vitally important. Individual righteousness and justice, right? In other words, how we relate to God is truly what it means to be righteous and how we relate to each other is truly what it means to live justly. And those things intertwine. We don't need to separate them. And so God looks and says, y'all just went right back to the stuff 150 years ago. I was warning you, I was going to wipe you out for. And you're back to doing it again. You know what this says? If there's one thing that you get from this part of the text, Understand this, make sure that we don't mistake repentance or that we don't look at repentance as something that is momentary and not rooted in a movement. In other words, repentance isn't, a, isn't just a moment. A lot of times we will think that way. A lot of times we will say, I know I repented because I remember that day when I said I was sorry. I remember the emotions I felt when I said I was sorry. I remember the actions I took in the moment when I said I was sorry. And so that's what you should hold on to. So if you feel like I hurt you here, you feel like I did it again, can't be true because I repented that day. Repentance isn't about a moment. It's about a movement, a regular repetitious movement in God's direction and not your own. That's repentance. It's never momentary. It's a series, a lifetime, a lifetime of repetitious movement in God's direction and not your own. So you can be repentant until you're not. That's just how it goes. For life, you act with, with fruit that is in accordance with repentance. You don't get to just look at one moment and trust that and roll. You don't get to go, well, I did it then. I'm good. No, it's a regular lifetime event. And it's hard. That's true. So Nineveh may have been, may have been authentic in their repentance 100, 150 years ago. They may have been. I don't know. But what I do know is you're only as repentant or you only repented until you're not. The moment you, you cease to be repentant, the moment that you cease to be penitent, your actions show it. It's not a moment. It's a movement. And so you've got uh, this first chapter where God is just showing the wrath that he's showing them because of their foolishness. And so he starts to spe uh, specify who God is, specify God's power, specify God's anger. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. In other words, God is loving, but he's also just. He can't be a loving God if he lets sin go unpunished. He'll show you grace and mercy. What did we say before? He shows you grace and mercy in order for your restoration. He doesn't show grace and mercy in order for your sin's preservation. But what they did was they started to preserve their sin. And God is like, no, 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 that's not why I gave you 
my grace. That's not why I give you my mercy. I give you grace and mercy so that you can turn and move back in my direction so that you can be restored. That wasn't their story. And so now Nahum is basically showing y'all only wanted to look at God as loving, loving, loving. Now you need to learn that God is also angry. And he's angry with your sin. This isn't about just scaring you about this invisible God. It's about you specifically seeing the actions that you take that anger God. The movements that you make that anger God. And so what's going to happen? Destruction is coming. And that's really what he goes through in the end of uh, uh, chapter one. Uh, Destruction is coming. Uh, And then at the same time, God, again, he shows his justice, but he also shows his mercy and his, and his deliverance again for Judah, right? The children of Israel are still being told, listen, you guys have been trampled on. You have been destroyed yet again. You probably have been angry for the last century because or however long their repentance, whenever their repentance ceased, you have, uh, Judah, you have watched these Assyrians, these Ninevites return back to these horrific acts of injustice, acts of violence, acts of brutality at your expense. And I don't want you to think that because I showed mercy, I have forgotten you because he doesn't. That's another part of who God is. He has not forgotten you. Yes, people have trampled. Yes, people have abused you. Yes, people have done horrific things to you. God has not forgotten you. So what does he say? He says, verse 12, this is what the Lord says. Though they are strong and numerous, they will still be mowed down and he will pass away. Though I've punished you, I will punish you no longer. For I will now break off his yoke from you and tear off your shackles. Basically, Judah, you've been disobedient at times. And yes, I allowed your enemies to overtake you as judgment for what you did, but they have still been wicked. And so I'm getting ready to take them out and I'm going to deliver you. And so he walks through that. We get to chapter two and you start to see even more a description of Nineveh's wickedness. And there's lots of uh, specific things that they've done, right? I mean, God is using the language he uses here. The language Nahum uses here is very telling. He says, one who scatters is coming up against you. Man the fortifications, watch the road, brace yourself, summon all your strength for the Lord will restore the majesty of Jacob. Yes, the majesty of Israel through uh, though ravagers have ravaged them and ruined their vine branches. The shields of his warriors are dyed red and valiant men are dressed in scarlet. The fittings of the chariot flash like fire on the day of its battle preparations and the spears are brandished. The chariots dash madly through the streets. They rush around in the plazas. They look like torches. They dart back and forth like lightning. He gives orders to his officers. They stumble as they advance. They race to its wall. The protective shield is set in place. The river gates are open and the place erodes away. Beauty is stripped. She's carried away. Her ladies in waiting moan like the sounds of doves and beat their breasts. Nineveh has been like a pool of water from her first days, but they are fleeing. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end to the treasure and abundance of every precious thing. And listen to these words. Desolation, decimation, devastation. Y'all didn't know God's got bars. Devastation, decimation, desolation. Hearts melt, knees tremble, insides churn. Every face grows pale. He's basically showing this is just how wicked you all have been. You have been so wicked, even within yourselves. Not only have you been sinful and unrighteous in your relationship with me, but the way in which you have completely shown injustice to the neighbor, the way you've shown injustice to the, to the, to the, uh, to the person who's not even a regular resident or an alien here, the people who have been uh, overtaken and brought into your community, the way you've treated them, the way that you exploit people, your wickedness is on display. And so when he gets to chapter three, he's basically laying out, here's your downfall. 
This is what you've done. This, you, you, not only have you done uh, these horrific things, but this is what's going to happen. Woe to the city of blood. Totally deceitful, full of plunder, never without prey. Describes more of what they do. The continual prostitution of the prostitute, the attractive mistress of sorcery who treats nations and clans like merchandise by her prostitution and sorcery. Whatever they were practicing, a lot of people think there's been ways in which they may have been sexually trafficking some of uh, the women, forcing them into this temple prostitution, taking advantage of people, using whatever they use, whatever kind of magic they would use, or practicing some of the uh, arts that they practiced, ways in which they would completely disenfranchise other people, especially other people of uh, children of Israel. These wicked things that would happen, God is declaring to them, What's good? I'm going to make a spectacle of you. Earlier, he says in verse 6 of chapter 3, I will throw filth on you. Earlier than that, he says, I will lift your skirts over your face and display your nakedness to nations. This is idiomatic to, to, to show a lot of times when, whenever they would show you know, nakedness, basically it's the shameful things you've done. Right. The shameful things, the, all the ways in which you've moved against God, moved away from God and done horrific, reprehensible things to people. I'm going to expose you. People aren't going to want to come near you. People aren't going to want to have anything to do with you because of the ways that you thought you could manage your sin and continue to damage others in the process. People are eventually going to look at Nineveh and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who's going to show sympathy to her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? And he just walks through, compares. Are you better than this horrific situation? Are you better than this horrific people group? Are you better than the thieves that sat along the Nile? This is how we know, by the way, that this happened after Jonah, because this, this situation, the thieves happened roughly around 615 B.C. So we know this happened after uh, Jonah, at least by about 80 to 100 years. Um, but he says, are you going to be any better than, than them? The, these wicked people, the horrible things that, that happened there? Cush in Egypt? Were her endless source of strength put, uh, put in Libya, were among her allies. Yet what happened to her? She became an exile. She went into captivity. Her children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her dignitaries, and all her nobles were bound in chains. He's basically saying, I gave you so much time. I gave you grace. I gave you a long runway to repent. I gave you a long runway to take action, to not just trust in moments, the moment I forgave you, but to begin a movement of moving in a different direction. And you chose not to do that. You took my grace for granted. You took the snake of your sin and you thought you could manage it. And it's only because of me that it didn't bite you. It's only because of me that I, that I restrained the venom, that I restrained the lunging out. But in the same way that the story that we started, when that camera flash goes off and that snake, whether you realize it or not, whether it's it's never acted like that before. Well, guess what? It is now and it's lunging out and you don't have the power to restrain it any longer. You trusted your ability to manage more than you trusted sin's ability to manage you. And now because you've not and you still have not taken any steps to move away from that, to move toward me, my judgment is inevitable. This is how God ends this book. He basically ends by describing even more. He really almost, some might say, put salt in the wound. This is how bad it's going to be for you. You're going to be like this over here. These people that got judged, that's going to happen to you. That kind of humiliation, that's going to happen to you. I know it's hard for us to see this type of God because, again, we like loving, merciful, gracious Savior, which he is. But he's not just that. 
So when we like to think of the grace of God, this is why amazing grace is so popular. We love amazing grace. We don't have a song called amazing justice. We don't have a song called amazing wrath. We don't have a song called amazing jealousy. We don't have a song called amazing anger. And yet all of those things are attributes of who God is. And it is in our best interest that we highlight those as well. It's in our best interest that we remember that our God is a wrathful God too. Not because our job is to run around and hide from this angry God with furrowed brow and arms folded and nodding his head and shaking his head at you in in, in, uh, complete disappointment. That's not why. We do it because we remember God cares so deeply about his image bearers reflecting him fully. And every way we don't reflect him, he gets angry. Every way we don't image him well, he gets angry and he gets jealous. Anger and jealousy aren't bad things, by the way. Anger and jealousy rooted in the wrong thing is what makes it sin. But anger and jealousy are not. If you're angry about the things God's angry about, that's righteous. If you're jealous for God's glory, that's righteous. The problem is we're not God. So almost all of our, a lot of times, our anger and our jealousy are rooted in our own selfishness, not in God's righteousness. So what do we learn? We learn that, yes, we like to think about the grace of God and we love God's grace. That's amazing. And it's so popular. But then we shy away from everything we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament that talks about God's wrath, talks about God's judgment. Nahum stands as a warning. Do not trample on God's grace because God's grace in various situations can run out. Yes, God is a God who is merciful. God is a God who is slow to wrath. God is a God who is willing to forgive us, willing to forgive us as we repent. He's loving in us to give us time to repent, to invite us to repent. He is a stronghold to those who trust in him. But he is also a God of wrath. He is also a God of judgment. And this is consistently revealed throughout all of Scripture. So what we see here. God is willing to forgive the repentant regardless of nation or culture. And the same God who had forgiven Nineveh in the days of Jonah is the same God who showed grace to Israel even when they transgress. And at the same time, God will punish the unrepentant equally, regardless of nationality or culture. The same Babylonians who who God raised up to punish Nineveh would ravage the unrepentant Jerusalem in the same way. God's grace still urges repentance, but God's grace gets trampled upon as common. Be sure then that the vengeance of God will come as well. So while Nahum is is about the judgment upon the nation of Israel and a warning to Judah as well, this is not the only level we must be aware of. We need to be uh, aware this is equally applicable to the people of God today, to the church today. If anything, God has even higher requirements for justice and righteousness as well. If if someone comes into the community of faith as a true believer, it's because he or she has received grace. But what does grace do? Grace moves us away from sin. Grace never justifies sin. Grace never allows us to just stay in in, in in a foolish direction or a foolish pattern or a foolish movement. Just because we haven't been bitten in 10 years doesn't mean our actions don't invite danger. 
Don't invite the likelihood that it still could happen. I don't care if you've been able to do this this way for 20 years. All it takes is one time. And you know what happened on that one time? Well, it never happened before. Well, yeah, but the danger, any person on the outside objectively could look and say, that danger is still there. That woman did what she did for 10, 12, 15 years. But everybody knows venom can kill you. Everybody knows that I don't care who you are. You're not a snake whisperer. You're not a bear whisperer. You're not a lion whisperer. You're not a manta ray whisperer. You, you cannot just think that because you've had a good track record that you can manage it fully. The same goes with our sin. That's why Paul tells us it is wrong to continue to sin so that grace might abound. Romans 6, right? God's going to judge anyone who claims to follow him, believe him, and still trample on his grace. Why? Because God's, God is loving and he's gracious and he's merciful and all of those things are, are certain. But his vengeance is certain too. This is why we live out repentance every day. A lifetime of moments become a movement of repentance. So we shouldn't use our status as his people to move away from him or to move away from each other. Our own sin is like a snake that we believe we can tame. We believe we have the right approach to keep from being bitten. And as was the case with Grace Olive Wiley, grace runs out. Be careful not to proclaim a form of cheap grace that highlights God's mercy and ignores God's justice and God's righteousness. Because all of that together is truly and holistically the love of God displayed to us. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you are wholly good. You are wholly merciful. You are wholly forgiving. And yet, God, if we stop there, if we just highlighted those attributes and lived the rest of our lives, we would miss all of you. God, I pray that you would uh, impress upon us these other aspects of your nature, these things that are good for us. Let us be aware of the things that makes you angry. Let us be aware of the things that makes you jealous. Let us be aware of the things that invites wrath or incites your wrath. Not so that we can run around as scared underlings, but so that we can fully and more holistically follow and love you well and love each other well. God, may we know that your holiness and your righteousness are valuable uh, 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 attributes of your nature that cannot be extricated in any way. God, let us be at a place where we are convicted of the areas in our lives where we are managing sin, where we are managing rebellion, where we are managing movements away from you and not engaging in movements toward you. Lord, as we complete Nahum, I pray that we would see ourselves as people that are committed to a movement of repentance and not just momentary emotional decisions, momentary happenings. Lord, let us be about a movement of repentance, a movement of genuinely engaging your love, your grace, your mercy, and your justice and your righteousness for your glory and not our own. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Let's receive this benediction from God, this holy, just, merciful, gracious God. Hopefully you hear all of these on display as we recite these words from Jude. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And may all of God's people say, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.